0: We turn in your Bibles now. We turn to the Word of God in John chapter eight. We continue our study this morning. John chapter eight. We will be reading from verses twelve through verse thirty. A very well-known passage regarding Jesus' declaration that He is the light of the world. John chapter eight, verses twelve through thirty, in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles which was one of three major feasts in which all males were required to attend above a certain age. They came. It was a festive feast. And in that celebration, John chapter 8, we read these words, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world And who who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and Will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I Have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. This particular passage of scripture, as I mentioned to you, is in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a celebration, a celebration, a remembrance. It was a time that they had together as the community gathered together. You know, I just returned this past week from a very sunny area of the country. It was bright and warm. It was very pleasant, mid-seventies. It was a very touristy place. And I decided I was going to take a surfboard lesson. I was going to go surfing. I'd never done that before, and my instructor was this elderly grandfather who had been teaching surfing and living on the beach all of his life. His skin was dark-toned and wrinkled due to the sun. It was wonderful though, I had the opportunity to not only learn from him but talk with him about some spiritual things as we waited out there in the ocean, waiting for a good wave to come in and we sat and we talked about his life. He had lived in the sun, he had lived in the beach there all of his life. Shared with me about his family. That he had grandkids and how he loved the beach, how he loved that area, how he had grown up there and lived there all of his life. But there was a sense, even as we talked, a sense in his own sharing, no matter how much sunshine and how many waves that he might catch, a sense of his own lack of satisfaction, Sense of sadness. And that's how it is. Many times, for those that don't know Christ, many who do not know the Lord Jesus, there is a sadness, a darkness in the human heart. The world is a dark place because of sin. One author writes, we live in a dark world, a world eclipsed by the long shadow of sin. In desperation, the lost people around us search frantically for truth without the facility to find it. Because of their spiritual blindness, they stumble deeper into sin's hopeless gloom, finding themselves utterly trapped in the snares of immorality or idolatry and all the unfruitful deeds of darkness, unquote. That's how the Bible depicts somebody who doesn't know Christ. The Bible depicts them as those who love the paths of uprightness or leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the waves of darkness, Proverbs 2.13 says. Or the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble, 4.19, Or Ecclesiastes 2.14, the fool walks in darkness. Or Ephesians 4 says that they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. In contrast, Jesus comes to such a world, and if you turn in your Bibles back a few chapters to John chapter 1, Jesus comes into this type of world, this dark world, in which people walk in darkness. And in verse 4, it says, In him, John writes, in him, meaning Jesus Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. You might think that people would flock to the light. You would think that people would be drawn to the light. Much like when I have a moth that comes into my home, I turn out the light, I open the door, and the moth will fly out, or the flies will fly out to the light. You would think that would be the case, but John 3.19 says this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. There was one incident that happened in Austin, Texas, in which there was a particular area of Austin that was a high crime area. And what they did was they decided in this high crime area to put up this street lamp in this particular area that had a lot of serious crime. And once they put this street light up, the crime statistics plummeted. But then someone took a rock or something like that and threw it at the light and it shattered the light and went out. Crime again resumed. The city decided, well, they're going to fix the light. So they went in there and fixed the light and crime went down. Somebody threw a rock at it, busted it and then crime went back up and then the city again fixed it and then it kept on happening over and over until the city finally gave up fixing the light much to the chagrin of the community that wanted it there. The point was that people who love sin, people who love sin, love the darkness. They scatter when there's light, much like cockroaches or bugs. When you turn on the light, they scurry away and hide. Like those who are addicted to drugs, they're addicted to their sin. They love living the life that they live, a life without God, a life without Christ, who shines on their light and exposes them. Time and time again, Christ comes and he makes an invitation. He calls out to a world that needs the light of salvation. And he calls them to turn in repentance to the light so that they might have life. And he does so here during this feast, this Feast of Tabernacles. As we see, he declares in verse 12 that he is the light of the world. He says, I am the light of the world. One of seven I am statements, the second of the I am statements that Jesus says. He says, I am the bread of life. Chapter 6, verse 35. I am the light of the world here in chapter 8. I am the door, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, again in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, verse 6 of chapter 14. And I am the true vine, he says in chapter 15. All of these things describe who he is and in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, a celebration, he declares that he is the light. But the backdrop of all of this is very important to understand. As you recall, this Feast of Tabernacles was a feast, the, perhaps one of the most celebrated feasts, the most enjoyable feast. It reminded the people of God's provision of the nation of Israel, As they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It was also called the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. You might see that in the scriptures. And there they they stayed out in the town square. Or they, they set up these little tents on the rooftops. And they stayed there. They lived in those tents. To remind them of how they lived in tents. As they were homeless in the desert. And how God provided for them. You recall in the Feast of Tabernacles, prior to this, when, when they would have a particular celebration during the day, they would take palm branches, they would stand around the altar, and they would sing the halal. In Psalm 113 to 118, there would be a water-pouring ceremony. The priest would take two pints of water from the Pool of Siloam, go through the water gate, poured out near the temple while the people were singing and praising God and praying for rain and thanking God for providing for them life-giving water when they were in the desert. And he, Jesus Christ, in chapter 7, verse 38, says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That was during the day. But there was a second Important ceremony that happened every night, likely, beginning the first night, and happened every night except for the Sabbath. And this was the context in which he spoke. Verse 20 says that he spoke in the treasury. He spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, okay? And so here he was in the temple. He was in the area called the treasury, It was the second and most outer court of the temple area. Within the temple area, there were different courtyards. The furthest one away was called the Court of the Gentiles, and it was in relationship to the distance of the Holy of Holies, that inner room, that small room in which the high priest would go once a year to bring and make atonement for the sins of the people. He would enter into though that place once a year. And the further you are away, there were different courts designated how close you could come within the temple. The furthest away was called the, the court of the Gentiles. If you were a God-fearer, you were a Gentile who was not a Jew, you wanted to come to God, you could come into the temple area, but then you, you couldn't go any further. Next was called the court of women. The court of women. Men were also allowed in there. And the court of women was where Jesus, where Jesus made this declaration. And the women could go in to the next court, which was the court of priests, where if they had a if they had a sacrifice to make. But in this court of women, there was also a, a treasury. A treasury, because there were thirteen of these of these receptacles, sort of like offering boxes, except they were shaped like shofar horns all around this, this uh, courtyard, which was held up by these colonnades. And in this courtyard, there was a temple, and in this courtyard, there was the treasury. The treasury had different boxes designating what your offering was for. Box number one and two, they were for the temple tax. You remember Jesus paid his tax to the temple, you know, paid his taxes to Caesar or whatever it may be. Boxes one and two were for that. The, the little horn, a receptacle, you put your money in and it would go in. It'd be hard to, to get money out, preventing people from stealing from it. Box three and four were for, for pigeons. For pigeon, the pigeon offering. You remember if you had a need to, if you were poor and you had to make an offering and you were limited in income, they would allow you to purchase two pigeons. To purchase two pigeons, you could make an offering at the altar and you would put your offering there and you would get your pigeons. It was also an offering that those who were expecting or those who had just had a child would also make for ceremonial cleansing. Then they would have box number five, or shofar the horn for number five. That would be if you wanted to give to keep the wood burning uh, underneath the altar. And then box number six, which was for the incense contribution. And box number seven, if you wanted to provide for some of the golden vessels which were used in the, in the sacrifices. And then eight through 13 was if you had a no no care, as to where it went, undesignated, you would give your offering there. But here was the area in which verse 20 says it was the temple treasury, also known as the court of women. But what was significant about this particular courtyard during this feast was that there were four huge candelabra. There were four gigantic festive lamps within this courtyard, and there were a lot of people in this area. And there was a ritual called the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple that would happen at night or when the sun was going down. And what they would do was that they would, during this time, during this feast, beginning the first night, they would light these gigantic festive lamps that would flood the temple and the surrounding area with light. One ancient Jewish source said there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. The blazing light would remind the people, would remind the people of God that it was God at night who led them by a pillar of fire. And it signified, secondly, Israel's recommitment to the God of light. And there would be festive music, and the people, the Levites, even the most dignified of the leaders, would have particular dances. They would dance in celebration with songs with blazing torches in their hands, singing songs of praise to God. And it was against this backdrop of the blazing light that would come from these candelabra out of the temple that Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you imagine it? Can you see it? It was here in this temple treasury in the earshot of where the Sanhedrin would meet. You see, those who knew the law, those who were familiar with what the law said, those who were the rulers of the people, those who were devout and committed, they would know what Jesus was saying. Because in Isaiah 42.6 and in Isaiah 49.6, there were two messianic prophecies Two messianic prophecies where God said that He would send a light, and this light would be a light to the nations. And here Jesus was saying in this context, I am the Messiah, the light of the nations. He was making a declaration with the backdrop of the light that came from the temple. Even in the rabbinic writings, they would say that the name of the Messiah was light. Know something else? In Malachi, if you turn your Bibles to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Malachi, who is a minor prophet, writes in chapter 4, verse 2. It says... But for you, but for you who hear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Notice how that's written. The sun of righteousness, S-U-N. You know, we sing a song during Christmas time called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the third verse there's, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. And it's spelled S-U-N. And for the longest time, I'd always thought, what a misspelling. It's always misspelled in all of these hymns. But it comes from Malachi verse 2 of chapter 4. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. It is because the Messiah is the Son, the light of righteousness. And Jesus declares himself as the Messiah. And the light, not just to the Jews, but a light of the world with the blazing torchiers blazing behind him. And that is who Jesus was. We sing the song, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And it comes from Psalm 27, verse 1. But the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jews, had nothing but doubt. Nothing but doubt. They understood what Jesus was saying. They didn't say, what do you mean by that? No. They questioned him. In fact, they said, you know what? Verse 13, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They denied it. In the Old Testament, there was always the principle, there was always the principle that two or three witnesses corroborated something. Corroborated something. They were saying legally, you know what? Your testimony is not true. It's invalid simply because you're saying it by yourself. That's pretty audacious. Jesus gives three responses to this, three reasons to their antagonistic objections. The first is, it's true because of divine self-awareness. His testimony is true because of divine self-awareness. Jesus answered and said to them, verse 14, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. They didn't know Jesus was from God. They thought, remember in the past chapter, they thought Jesus, Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. They don't have a great reputation. It's part of the Galileans, and there's a, a bunch of, oh, not so shady. They're kind of shady characters up there. That's where Nathaniel, when Nathaniel was called, said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They even got that one wrong because they said, well, the Messiah, we know the Messiah is to be born from Bethlehem. Without even asking Jesus where he was born, they didn't know where he was from. Jesus knew where he was from and where he was going, but they had no clue. Testimony is true because of divine fellowship. Because of divine fellowship. Verse 15, you judge according to flesh. I'm not judging anyone. And even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. They were judging according to their worldly view, their worldly standard, not according to what the Word of God said, and they weren't righteous in their assessment. They were not people who were judging with spiritual eyes but with worldly eyes and Jesus thwarts them using the word of God itself not some superficial standard that's not to say you see Jesus won't judge anyone because he will in the future but it won't be by what their superficial judgment would be he's not alone in his judgment he and God he says are one another claim To deity. You see, he had a relationship with God they knew nothing about. But thirdly, because of divine testimony. Even in your law, it says there's a testimony of two or three witnesses. Even if you insist on two witnesses, he says that it is God and I myself both who testify. Remember when Jesus was baptized in John chapter, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, a voice from heaven. Declared, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Testimony corroborated by God the Father himself. But they were still unbelieving, blind in their unbelief, blind because their hearts were darkened, blind because we have a world and a heart that has been tainted and blinded by sin and Satan. They were dark. They were blind. They were blind, first of all, to knowing God the Father, because they asked him, where is your father? Where is your father? Remember in the past chapter, they said, his father isn't the son of a carpenter? Again, they did not know. Thought just some guy out of Nazareth, who is he? They thought they knew God. They thought they had a relationship with God. Remember, they would say, we are children of Abraham. We are part of God's family already. Why? Because we're born into it. And they said, Thou Jesus, we don't know who you are. They thought they had a relationship with God, but Jesus. Point blank tells them they'd neither know him nor the Father, because if they had a relationship with God the Father, they would know him. They were blind to the way of life. Verse 21 I go away, you will seek me, you will die in your sins, for where I'm going, you cannot come. They're blind to the way of life through Christ. They don't know the Son. They will die in their sins. Jesus repeats that several times. They will die in their sins if they do not have a relationship with Christ. It's the same thing that the Apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He told in his preaching, he said in Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Must be saved. No other name. Just as Jesus will say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You know, I was talking with a non-Christian on vacation, and I told them this, that Jesus was the only way, And they said, what about Muslims and Hindus and good people around the world, to which I told them, you know, God is a just God. He is a holy God. And his standard is the same for all of mankind, that the only way to have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, and they must come and believe in Christ. The non-Christian politely said, and we had a very cordial relationship, well, isn't that rather arrogant to say? I told them, well, look, if there was a disease and there was one cure, it really doesn't matter what someone else believes. It really doesn't matter what they want to believe. There's only one cure, and it's not arrogant to say that that is the only cure for that disease. I mean, you can believe what you want to believe, but it doesn't matter because in the end, it's simply won't work simply because somebody believes that it may be true I told them it's like the law of gravity it's a law that affects everyone you can jump off of a building and believe all you want that you can fly but I tell you what you're still going down and you're going to die And likewise to those that don't repent, that those that don't place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will die in their sins, as Jesus repeatedly says here in this context. Such a sobering thought, isn't it? Such a sobering thought because there are those who do not know Christ, those that you and I know that are not going to heaven and they are going to hell because they do not have a faith and a trust in Jesus Christ and have not turned from sin. There are no second chances. Thirdly, they were blind because of unbelief. They're blind because of unbelief. So where's he going? They said, surely he's not going to kill himself in mockery. He's not going to commit suicide, is he? Verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins unless you place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus. You know, I had an opportunity, had an opportunity to have a wonderful time on my flight, long flight, five or six hours, with a captive audience of those that I sat next to on the airplane. I think it's one of the most wonderful opportunities. I'll tell you what, if you really want to share the gospel, I really believe that you can have the opportunity. It's not a matter of, oh, I never meet people. It's not a matter of, oh, I don't have any non-Christians that I meet. I'll tell you, if you really want to share the gospel, you pray to God and ask God, bring a non-Christian into my life. Bring people into my life because I want to share my faith. Give me the boldness and God will. And on my flight over, God placed me in the middle seat between two people. And I had a long, very long conversation God opened the door of opportunity. I met this very nice lady. Very nice lady. And for the next three to four hours of that, only having to take a break because we needed to use the restroom. And we talked for hours about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. And we talked, to make a long story short, we talked about the commandments of God. Those of you who are in the Sunday school class, way of the master, you know, we talked about the commandments of God and I didn't run right off the bat, tell her, well, you know, you're a lying, adulterous sinner, there's a sinner of heart, idol, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, just, I didn't want to do that. I told them, well, you know, I've lied and I've sinned and I've done all of these things. No one's perfect, I'm sure you've done so the same. And they nodded their heads and they agreed with all of the things that I shared about them about myself as well, about the justice of God, and I began to explain about the holiness of God and how I was imperfect and my own unrighteousness and how I was not deserving of salvation and everyone was a sinner who needed salvation because God is a just God and God is a just judge. And she understood that because she was an attorney. So when it came down to it, Though, when it came down to the Word of God and the things that the Bible taught, even though she had an exposure to Christianity, even though she had sort of had a lot of church experience in her past when she was a teenager, she said, well, I don't know if I believe all of that. I don't know if I believe in the Bible. How can you believe something that was written hundreds of years after Jesus lived, well, that was a mistake. I went on to explain how that simply was not true. In fact, the Bible was written the same generation as Jesus. Many of the scriptures were written by eyewitnesses of Christ himself. I began to explain the veracity and the truthfulness of the Bible and how the Bible is unique among all other books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years from people of all different professions, all walks of life, written on three different continents and three different languages, and yet is thematically unified, speaks consistently of the person of Jesus Christ, And when compared in its copies to other ancient writings, even things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, the differences between the manuscripts was negligible. And I told her as an attorney, whenever you look at uh, whatever evidence that there is, you what? You adjudicate the amount of evidence and you make a decision based upon the preponderance of evidence that is purported and, and presented to you. That the evidence, both internally and externally, the archaeological evidence that continues when it is on earth to support what the scriptures say, the evidence of fulfilled prophecy, that the things written about Christ hundreds of years earlier, and she believed that Christ was a person who existed, and that prophecy was fulfilled specifically as it was hundreds of years later overwhelmingly argue for the truthfulness and the uniqueness of the word of God and we had a wonderful open cordial very long discussion in fact they offered me a ride to wherever I was going after we landed very relaxed I don't know if that was because she was drinking wine But the bottom line was, she said again, well, I I don't know if I believe all of that. I don't know if I believe Jesus is a son of God and that he died for sin. I don't know. I just don't believe everything that it says. And that is the same issue with these Jews who are here. They simply did not believe. For Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They were blind because of unbelief. They would die in their sins because of unbelief. You cannot convince or argue anyone into salvation, but that doesn't mean that you surely don't present the truth of the word of God and the way of salvation. They would die in their sins. They would die in their sins because of unbelief. Fourthly, they were blind to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, verse 25 to 29. Still blinded in their understanding The Jews refused to recognize Jesus for who he was. Who are you, they said in verse 29. From the beginning, Jesus had been telling them of who he was. From the beginning of John's gospel, he presented to them the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's exactly what we are to do. We are to do and present the truth of the word of God. And we are to do it as it says, Jesus says, the things which I heard from him, I speak to the world. That's exactly what we are to do. We're to present in full and complete obedience as messengers of God to a world. We're to tell them the truth, whether it is popular or unpopular, whether it is in season or out of season, whether it is going to be received or not. To friends and relatives, we are to tell them about Jesus and who he is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, knowing the antagonism, knowing that they were after his life, he didn't say, well, no, 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 I'm not going to share. I know they're not open to it. I'm just going to keep it to myself because I don't want to offend them. I don't want to make them hardened. I want to keep the peace. I don't want to say anything. If I tell them the truth, it'll cause them maybe just to push back. No, he tells them the truth because of love. He tells them truth because it is necessary for them to hear what is true. Told them the truth, the truth in love that speaks of the way of salvation. Jesus says in verse 29, He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That is also what Jesus reminds us. When he gave the Great Commission before he ascended, he told his disciples that he would never leave them nor forsake them. When we do what is true, it pleases God. When we do what is right and desire to please God just as Jesus did, that is the Right thing that we are to do. Is that our motive? Is that our motive? Whatever we do, we desire, as Jesus said in verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Do you want God to be pleased with your life? Do you want God to smile upon your life? I've shared this before that when I was a little boy, I used to picture that God must have a huge wallet of all of his children. And God would like to sometimes pull out that wallet and show all of his angels, all of his kids, just like any other parent. And I thought as a little boy, you know what I'd want to do? I'd want to be one of those that would be up near the front, you know, those little flip things out. and I wouldn't want my picture to be all the one. You flipped out the wall and there it goes down in the clouds and, oh, there's little Joey out there. I'd wanted to be up here in which, geez, God would say, look at, look at, look at, look at this one. He, he, he's doing good. He's doing all right, you know. Look, he's next to Billy Graham, whoever it may be. <laughs> I always wanted that. Do you do that in verse 29? I always want to please God. I always want to do things that God would be proud of me. God would smile upon me, that God would say that, Is a good thing, a good attitude. Our behavior is a reflection of what we truly believe. Our behavior is to reflect who we truly are. And when we share about Christ, God has those who have just been waiting, waiting to hear. Because in verse 30, Even though there was all of this opposition, verse 30 tells us, when Christ shared, he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. The result wasn't complete rejection. The result wasn't complete antagonism. Not just a few, not some, but many came to believe in him. God opened their eyes to the light of the Savior. So don't be afraid because, you know, many times we come and we think about sharing the gospel. We think about sharing about Christ with someone and we hesitate because we think to ourselves, you know what, they're probably not going to say or do anything and they're probably going to maybe even be a little antagonistic and we have that fear and doubt. But you know what, God has prepared some if we simply would share. You know, the world drowns in their own sin and darkness. Jesus has come as the light of the world. And he declares during the Feast of Tabernacles with the backdrop of this blazing light that he is the light of the world. Not just of a few, not just of our friends. We'll let our light not just shine among our Christian peers, but to shine for the world to see. Our responsibility is to share. Sometimes we have trouble. Why? Why? You know, when I was on vacation, I learned something about talking with people you don't know. About talking with people you don't know. Just imagine to yourself that you had a chance to go and see the Grand Canyon. Maybe there's been an experience in your life when you stood at the base of Mount Rainier after a hiking trip. Or you've stood and you were there at the birth of your child. And you're captivated by the grandeur and the sight that you see in awe. Do you know what tourists do? They generally say something. Wow. Do you see that? They talk to people they don't know. Do you see that? Look at that. Look at all the colors. What a sight. And They leave somebody on the bus with a sense of wanting to see the same thing. The reason why maybe there's a lack of motivation sometimes in sharing about God and Christ is because there's a lack of vision for the greatness of God. Look at Christ, look at the Things that Christ has done and the greatness of God. And think great things about God. What he has done in your life. And what he can do in the life of someone else. And you see their darkness because they don't know Christ. And you share with them when you are reminded of the grandeur of God. Because you cannot help but to say, wow. Amazing. Did you see that? See what God has done? Do you know God to share with a world without hope about the light of life? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a blessing it is that you have granted to us the light of life. What an exciting opportunity, oh God, we have to let our light shine in such a way that others may see our good works and ask about the true light, the light of the world. And God, what a blessing it is to bring someone, to take their hand and to lead them to the light, that they might see and know you, that they might have a relationship with you, that their heart might be transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that their life might flow with rivers of living water. What a joy it is to lead others to salvation. Oh God, open our eyes that we might see the opportunities that you present to us. And may we let our light shine for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.